Hello and welcome to This Shit Really Happened, the true crime podcast where we deep dive into the most disturbing, <laughs> depraved, and downright gruesome true crimes in history. My name is Em. And I'm Autumn. <laughs> and we have a surprise guest host of Carter who just jumped his fat ass right up onto the table. What are you doing? You're not supposed to be up here. Carter. You're interrupting. You didn't even let us get through the intro. I know, bud. Come on. He was like, heard the countdown, and he was like, oh, it's time. That means that countdown big thump John. you guys could probably hear was his fat ass getting pushed off the table. Because he's a whopping 16 pounds. Ah, Carter. He's a big boy. With your little legs boy. and little tail. It's so funny. He's got the stubbiest little legs and just the biggest, roundest, rotund body. He said, don't you talk about my belly. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't know what we're talking about. He has one brain cell, and it only works about 25% of the time. Ah. It's <laughs> like, I might have said this before, but you know, like the old, like, um, like DVD screensavers, how it, like, bounces, bounces around? From the That's what his one brain cell does, and, like, every time, like, you know, like, when the it thing would hit the colors. corner, or when the thing would, like, hit the corner perfectly, sometimes his brain cell will hit the corner of his like brain and he'll have a thought he definitely <laughs> definitely changes colors every time it bounces yeah, it does yeah so he is a very sweet very handsome guy he's just not very smart mm, no. <laughs> no oh but we love him and his big giant 16 pound ham body yes. as i say yes. <laughs> so oh my gosh we are we are back for another episode we are again recording on a thursday even though we do podcast Tuesdays. Well, yeah, I mean, we record on Thursdays, but episodes get released on Tuesdays. So when you guys are listening to this, it'll probably be a Tuesday. <laughs> um, And also, it is Thirsty's Thursday, so hey, we have another hey. drinky drink. This one is pink. Pink. And it has a shot of Malibu mango, a shot of pink kinky, and some guava mango juice. Hey, it's pretty damn good. Tastes like a pink popsicle. Pink popsicle. We love that. Mm -hmm. We love that. The trend of the fruity drinks is where I want to be. Yes. Like last week, that shit was good. Yeah, it was. It was dangerous. It was. And then after the podcast, we went and drank some more of those. We finished those bad boys off. We ran to the liquor store. We, we got, got more some bottles. More. We got some more bottles, so we went back and we made, <laughs> made a few more. Dude, what? We had like, th- was it two or three more? Oh, good lord. So, yeah, that's how, uh, that's how our <laughs> rest of our night went we were done. We munched on some more pizza. Oh, we yeah. We drank our drinks. We jammed a little bit. It was great. It was great. Figured out. Ellie knows every single fucking word. To a 6 9 song, <laughs> I was stunned. She literally stopped me in my tracks. <laughs> She's like, Who are you? <laughs> I was like, What? <laughs> she knew every single word. I'm pretty sure she knew the ad libs. <laughs> <laughs> that is a. Okay, so I don't fuck with Takashi 6 9 like that. He's weird, mm-hmm. he's gross. But that song is a fucking bop, and I will. <laughs> I will put that shit on loud as hell in my car and just like, <laughs> like so. Um, <laughs> that is the only Takashi Six Nine song on my playlist. I don't. You know how I feel about like people mm-hmm. who do weird shit like that. Mm-hmm. Just so. like you're, you're like, oh yeah, I do have a Chris Brown song. I do. Wall, wall. I have one Chris Brown song because Wall to Wall goes hard as fuck. Okay. 
It does. <laughs> Bruh. <laughs> Bruh. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it is what it is. I'll I'll give I'll give them each one one song on my playlist for for them problematic artists. <laughs> I'll allow myself one. Just you one. get you get one. <laughs> I get one song for each artist that be doing some weird bad shit in their their day to day life. So yeah. that'll be uh that'll be my rule for myself. Just one. You get one. Just one. I will have that self control, but I will not. <laughs> I know. I know. Every time you put out a song, it's Chris Brown. I'm like, turn that shit off. I'm like, we're listening. We're listening to it. Oh, God. It's like how one of like Chris Brown's songs, I think maybe one of his new songs, is like viral on TikTok right now. It's like mm-hmm. every time I'm scrolling on my fucking For You page, it's that goddamn song. <sighs> you can't lie. He has a good voice. I'm not saying he doesn't. I'm just saying that doesn't excuse the shit he did. No, no not at all. But, like, his music is so good. <laughs> yeah, like, that's the, that's the shit I, like... I think there was, like... Oh, what was it? It was, like, a sketch or something that, like, Pete Davidson did on SNL where he was, like... He's, like, you can listen to their music as long as you acknowledge that they're shitty fucking people. Yeah. He's, like... He said... He was talking about, like, R. Kelly or something. And he was, like... He's, like, I can listen to R. Kelly's song, but every time I listen to R. Kelly, I'm gonna donate, like, a dollar to, like, a charity for survivors, like, sexual assault or something. (laughs) And he's, like... Every time you play a song, you just gotta first admit what the person did, and then yeah. you can play the song. <laughs> <laughs> so, funny. every time a Chris Brown song comes on, you'll be like, he beats women, play. <laughs> <laughs> he beats women, play. play. <laughs> <laughs> I don't condone that behavior, but this song is a fucking bop. <laughs> yes. Have to listen to the music. Yeah. Not think about the person. Oh, hello. Excuse you. We have another special guest. Come here, buddy. You haven't been on in like a hot minute. Say hi. Oh, that was kind of raspy. That was kind of raspy. crunchy, bud. He does have a very crunchy meow sometimes. That was Ralph if y'all listeners can't identify my cats by their meows yet. Even though he's the only one. Like Carter... I'm not going to ever be able to get him to just squeak on command into the microphone. Mm-hmm. But this one, you like, you get him a squeeze and he makes a noise. Mm-hmm. Right, bud? He's like a... Sure. He's like a little wind-up toy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, God. He squeezes when he makes a sound. It's like the dog toys. <laughs> yeah. He's a squeaky toy. Mm-hmm. He's a squeaky toy. Oh, man. Well. Anyway. Anyways. <laughs> so... Last episode, I talked about how I gave Autumn a choice between a cannibal and a serial killer and picked a cannibal. cannibal. Mm-hmm, sure and did. I already had some stuff queued up for the serial killer, so I figured why not do that case Doge. this week? So, Doge. I hear a dog. There's a, uh, that's like, a big dog. Is it? There's like a dog somewhere you in can tell like, my neighbor's houses that just like barks all day and like. I can hear it all day, just fucking barking. I'm um, like, so I'm gonna get your damn dog. Oh my god, that random ass Yorkie that was mm-hmm. just like in my driveway <laughs> was that like yesterday? You were like, what the fuck? I was like, you? whose fucking dog is that? <laughs> <laughs> it had no collar, nothing. I thought like maybe like it had it been probably, like outside with yeah. like somebody, but it looked like maybe it like got out and probably, like it probably escaped its collar. Yeah, I tried to like. Like, go up to it to see if it would, like, let go me, like, pick it up or something. And no, it just, like, looked at me and, like, ran away. So, I was like, It was, like, right. absolutely the fuck not. Right? And, I mean, like, it, 
don't know. I hope whoever's Yorkie that was found it. Sorry if somebody out there lost their Yorkie. I, I couldn't save it. Uh, it ran right by me. I couldn't get it. And I had shit to do. I was leaving the house, so I was not going to take up my time to go catch a little rat-ass dog that got off its fucking leash or something. Sorry. If it was a cat, 100%, I would have taken the time to catch that thing, but... I don't really, I don't really care about dogs that much. Like, don't get me wrong, dogs are cool, but if it was a big dog, I would go after it. Yeah. I would be afraid that it would like maul me. Come here. I don't trust dogs. Like, I'm afraid that if I go up to like a random ass dog, that it's gonna fucking bite me. Well, you can tell by a dog's mannerisms if it's gonna fuck you up or not. Yeah, I guess. With I a just... cat, they're like, love me, but now I'm going to attack. The well, shit it's out of a you. cat that genuinely doesn't want to be fucked with will also give you warning signs not to fuck with it. <laughs> It's people that can't read cats' body language that go, no, it's a cat, and get fucked with. <laughs> that's your own I damn just, fault. I just want to exhibit A, people who don't know Bird, and she rolls over on her belly and allows I you to... I always sh- tell everybody who comes over that if Bird rolls on her, like, shows you her belly, it's, it's a, a trap. trap. She don't does not. Do she wants you to touch her stomach so she can fuck you up. <laughs> uh, the only safe places to pet on Bird are, like, her, head. her back... Her head and, like, the tops of her shoulders. <laughs> Don't you start reaching under her belly or she's going to fuck you up. Mm-hmm. And she also hates to get her nails clipped, so I don't do it often. So um, she is she is uh, armed scratchy. and dangerous. She's scratchy so right now. If she catches you with one of those claws, you're gonna get, she's going to get you good. <laughs> There's been a point where I've had to literally, like, pick her, like, claw out of my skin because <gasps> she... She caught me, like, right in the arm the one day. Mm. She There's a scar right there. She got me mm-hmm. right there. And I did. I had to, like, <laughs> fucking <laughs> yoink her claw out of my arm. Jesus Christ. Yeah, that was some fuck shit. I All feel right. like every episode we get on a rant about your fucking cats. We do. Because, I mean, they're just around and they're just doing funny shit. And they're fun to talk about. I love my cats. <laughs> if you couldn't tell, I really love my cats. Ah, shit. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay, but anyways... The case I have for you today is that of Herbert, also known as Herb Baumeister. Baumeister. Yep, that's quite a name. Um, this case takes place in um, the greater Indianapolis area in Indiana, so we're finally <laughs> back in the U.S. Back in the U.S. <laughs> only the second, well, this is going to be episode 13, so only mm-hmm. two out of 13 cases have been in the United States. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I just feel like there's already been so many cases from the U.S. that, like, popular podcasts have covered, so I'm like, hmm, like, let me go, like, outside of stuff and, like, see if I can find something that, like, I haven't seen done before, only seen done, like, a couple times, so, like, that's my whole reasoning of not wanting to do any of, like, the major cases, like, Dahmer or Bundy or John Wayne Gacy or like Ed Kemper or any of like those Mm -hmm. because they've been done a million and one times like Mm -hmm. I know way more about fucking Ted Bundy just (laughs) off the top of my head than like any rational person ever (laughs) because I've listened to like six different fucking podcasts that have covered Bundy so it's like I'm not gonna like there's a million out there I'm not gonna be a million and one so those are those are cases I'm never gonna do it. I don't know if I've ever seen anybody cover this one, so if anybody has before, cool, great. Um, but yeah, I'm gonna cover this one. So, um, as per usual, I'm just gonna start us right off with talk about who the fuck Herb Baumeister was and what this man's was up to in his life. So he was born Herbert Richard Baumeister, and he was born April seventh, nineteen forty seven, in Indianapolis, Indiana. 
That's why his name was Herbert, because he was born in the fucking 40s. <laughs> right. Herbert. Herbert. <laughs> what a name. That's Herb. Herb, Herb Baumeister. That is... It that sounds is, creepy. That's a serial killer name right there. That's like, mm, no, I'm okay. <laughs> you want to hang out with my friend Herb Baumeister? I'd be like, no. no. He sounds like he would stuff me in like a meat freezer or something. I'm not interested in hanging out with Herb. No, thanks. <laughs> no T.Y. No, um, so Herb was the oldest of four children. He was named after his father, Herbert Sr., and his mother's name was Elizabeth. He had, like, a pretty relatively normal, like, childhood. So, like, prepubescence. There was, like, no signs of, um, like, anything really being wrong with him. Because, like, what you see a lot of the times in cases with serial killers is they're showing, like, very odd behaviors like I, th- I forget what it's called but it's like a triad of specific behaviors that like um children will exhibit when they're young that could point towards them potentially having like antisocial personality disorder or being like mm-hmm. potentially dangerous to to hum- to humans I say mm-hmm. to other people mm-hmm. and it's like bedwetting fire starting and cruelty to animals mm-hmm. So, like, he didn't display any of that stuff when he was, like, young, like a child. But the second he started to get into, like, his adolescence and his early teenage to teenage years, that's when he started, like, getting a little weird. (laughs) And that's when he started displaying a lot of, like, just antisocial behaviors. But it wasn't those behaviors that really would be a part of that triad that would make people kind of, like, you know, look a little sideways. Like, hmm, he's, uh... He's dangerous. Like, people just thought he was weird. Mm-hmm. He did weird shit when he was a teenager. Like, there were some instances where he was, like, he would, like, play with dead animals. Like, he would not kill them himself, but there was, like, I think somebody said he, like, left, like, a dead crow or, like, something on, like, a classmate's desk. There was also an instance where he literally, like, just, like, after school, like, broke into a classroom and, like, pissed on the desk of a teacher that had pissed him off that day. Um... He was also said to have, like, a very, like, morbid and, like, macabre, like, sense of humor. He would tell, like, really weird <laughs> fucking jokes. And, like, like, just... People thought he was weird. He was a fucking weirdo. <laughs> his classmate, like, obviously, people thought he was weird. So a lot of his classmates, like, just distanced himself or themselves from him. Because they're like, mm, Herb's a fucking weirdo. Mm-hmm. They're like, mm, I'm okay. Yeah, it's like, everybody has, like, that one weird kid... And in, like, their like, high school that you're like, yeah, um, no. <laughs> I'm okay. Yeah, you're like, if I was alone with him or her, like, I genuinely think they would try to do some weird shit to me. And I'm not trying to get, <laughs> I'm not trying to get murdered. <laughs> and so, yeah, that's how a lot of Herb's classmates kind of felt about him. They're like, yeah, he's weird. So they just kept a very, like, wide berth around him. He was, like strangely obsessed with like trying to be popular and be liked but it just didn't coincide with how fucking weird he was (laughs) like he tried to join the football team and like he was like a wasn't fucking good at football and b everybody on the team was like no he's a fucking weirdo we don't want him on the team so he ended up just being like all throughout his high school years he was he was a loner pretty much he Mm -hmm. came to himself he didn't have like any friends really people just thought he was fucking weird and he was doing weird shit like putting dead birds on people's desks and peeing on other desks so i don't i don't blame people for not wanting to be friends with him no absolutely not 
Um, he was actually diagnosed with schizophrenia when he was a teenager because uh, his, his parents were, like, very concerned about the behavior. Like, there was a few instances where his teachers had called home concerned about how volatile and disruptive her would be in class. And so his parents, like, took him to the doctor and got him evaluated, and he was diagnosed with schizophrenia. Like, mind you, this is what, like, the late 50s, 50s, early 60s. So the treatment for these types of mental disorders was basically no treatment at all, or you went into a mental hospital and you got your brain electrocuted. So his parents just chose not to seek any sort of treatment for her. They were just like, oh, you have schizophrenia. Like, that explains all your behavior. But nothing was ever done to get him any sort of treatment for mm-hmm. it. So he graduated high school. After he did, he did attempt to attend college. Um, he graduated I, probably 1964 because his first semester of college was 1965. He went to Indiana University. His father was an anesthesiologist, so he really wanted Herb to, like, follow in his footsteps and, like, study anatomy and, like, all this other stuff in college. But, like, it just was not for Herb. Like, it was not Mm -hmm. a thing that he wanted to do. So he dropped out of Indiana University after his first semester in 1965. He did try to go back. Like, his father basically convinced him to go back again in 1967. But the same thing happened. He dropped out before the end of the first semester. Um, He did try college again in 1972, attending a different university, um, Butler University. But again, he dropped out after after a semester. So college was not not Herb's thing. He wasn't he wasn't interested, interested in following in his father's footsteps. He wasn't interested in any sort of like higher education. He was like, nah, it's not for me. Um, There was something good that came out of him actually going to college, though, and that was that he met his future wife, um, who was named Juliana. She was working as a high school journalism teacher while she attended Indiana University part-time. So, like, weirdly enough, like, we just talked about, like, how fucking weird Herb was. But, like, him and Juliana hit it off, like, immediately. Mm-hmm. I think they had a class together, and they just started talking, and, like, they found out that they had a lot of stuff in common. And they would just, like, talk to each other endlessly. Like, they would hang out together, and they would, like, go on dates. And they, like, ended up dating shortly after they met. It was, like, a couple weeks after they met that they began going out. Mm-hmm. Um, and they did end up getting married in 1971. Um, it was a relatively happy marriage for the first couple months. But um, six months into the marriage, Herb's father actually had Herb committed into a mental institution to try to, like, help. get him help for, like... Because his father probably saw him, like, going to college and dropping out and going to college and dropping out three separate times. Yeah. <laughs> and was like, um, yeah, that's weird. <laughs> and so, yeah, his father had him committed to a mental institution. But, you know, Juliana chose to stay by his side. She was like, you know, he's a good husband to me. We have a good relationship. Like, yeah, he might act a little odd <coughs> sometimes. But, you know, I'm going to stand by him because he's my husband and I love him. I couldn't find how long Herb was in the mental institution for, but he did obviously eventually get out. Like, he went back with Juliana, and they were living together in this little house in Indianapolis. Um, And he was basically, after he pretty much figured out that, like, college was not going to work for him, he started looking for work. Mm -hmm. And then his father actually, like, came around and was actually able to use some of his connections to get Herb a job as a copy boy Mm -hmm. with the Indianapolis Star, which was, like, a decently large newspaper um, out of Indiana. Mm -hmm. So his job was basically to just, like, get things off the printer, off the copier, and, like, run physical stories between the journalist's desks. And he also performed, you know, like, small, like, errands and run around things for, um 
the journalist that also worked for the newspaper. He was very fixated on wanting to make a good impression, like not necessarily on his coworkers, but on his bosses. It was like how in high school he wanted to be on the football team because he wanted to be popular. Mm -hmm. He wanted to do a good job because he wanted to impress his bosses. And he was basically kind of a kiss ass. And like this did not go over well with any of his coworkers. Like he again just ended up completely alienating himself from his coworkers because they're like, we don't fuck with her. Like he's weird and he's literally like trying to suck the boss's dick because he wants to like get a fucking promotion or something. So. Again, he's just, like, on his own. (laughs) So everybody's like, Herb's weird. We don't like Herb. And Herb's like, whatever. I'm Mm -hmm. just going to stay weird. Mm -hmm. He doesn't care. He said, fuck y'all, I'm married. (laughs) Fuck y'all, I'm married. I have one person who doesn't think I'm weird. (laughs) And that's fine. Um, So he, he was unsatisfied with the fact that he was kind of a nobody at his job. And he did eventually just quit the job at the Indianapolis Star to start a new job working for the Indiana Bureau of Motor Vehicles, or abbreviated the BNB. <laughs> um, at the BMV, he came off very, like, bossy and aggressive towards a lot of his coworkers. Like, he would lash out at them for no reason and, like, try to, like, tell them how to do things and give them directions. And they're like, you're not our fucking boss. Like, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. And what he was doing was trying to emulate the same kind of behavior that he had seen from, like, his own supervisors and his own bosses because he thought, like, that's what would get him that recognition that he was looking for. But, again, it just served to basically alienate him from mm-hmm. his coworkers. Like, Herb just doesn't know how to interact with people. No. Nope. Which, like... Well, he was diagnosed with yeah, it, which it makes, makes sense. sense. It makes sense. Like he he displays these sorts of antisocial behaviors. He's got this completely unchecked, probably relatively crippling mental illness, and so he's just trying to do what he can do because he thinks that's the way for him to like move forward in life. And like he came from like his father was an anesthesiologist. I don't remember what his mother did, but he came from like a decently wealthy, successful family. Right. And so he's probably got his father who's pressuring him to be successful and do well. And then he's got, like, his own perceptions of what it means to be successful and do well. So he's just, you know, he's not having a good time. He's not doing he's not doing any of these things right. And he's just making everybody around him think he's a fucking weirdo. So, um, again, his coworkers did come to think of Herb as being very weird. Um, his behavior was considered by many to be just, like, very erratic very out there um like for example there was one year that herb for christmas he sent a christmas card to all of his co-workers and like on the card was herb and just like another man like i don't know who this man was but they were just like dressed up in drag together on this christmas card what the fuck? i know and mind you again that this is like the like mid-70s so like it's like this is weird yeah like people were not like out like that they were not openly flamboyant like that because like homophobia was still a very real thing right like if you were a gay person in the united states at this time like there was a very real chance that you would get fucking hate crimed yep. if people thought even suspected like not even confirmed that you were gay just like thought you might be gay mm-hmm. and that's kind of like 
what happened after this Christmas car, like, around the water cooler. The chat was like, oh, my God, like, did you see that car? Like, is he gay? Mm. And so, yeah, they all just thought that he was weird. He might have secretly been gay. And they're just like, yeah, we're going to we're going <laughs> to shy away from her. Um, despite his behavior and his his rep with his coworkers, he actually did really well at this job that he had at the BMV. He worked there for 10 years and he actually even received a couple promotions at the time that he was working there. Um, but in 1985, Herb got fired from the BMV after he had urinated on a letter that was on like a boss's desk and was addressed to the then government of Indi- the governor of Indiana, like Robert Orr. Like, so I don't I don't know off the top of my head like what Robert Orr's political affiliation is, but Herb Baumeister was like very politically conservative. So I don't know if he just didn't like the governor of Indiana. He like, mm-hmm. And he saw this letter addressed to him and was like, fuck you, Robert Orr, and just pissed on it. But it just the letter was also on one of his boss's desks, so he also coincidentally peed all over the boss's desk. <laughs> So he got fucking canned. They're like, yeah, dude, you can't fucking do that. Um, There was also, um, like, a few months earlier to this event that got him fired. There was, like, pee found on another manager's desk. Like, nobody knew where it came (laughs) from. And when people found out that Herb had, like, peed on this letter on this other manager's desk, they're like, fuck, it was probably him, (laughs) like, peed on the second manager's desk. Like, that's, like, a fucking trend for him. Like, why is he just pissing on things? What a weirdo. Maybe he just gotta go. And that's just, like, the best option for him. (laughs) There's gotta be something better to do than peeing on your then-teacher or then-boss's He's like, poor. Oh, my God. Okay. I need a nap. But anyway... Too bad. No naps. Uh, Not allowed. After this, I'm about to go to sleep. Yeah. It, like, kind of makes me think, like, one of the, um, the signs of, like, antisocial personality disorder that we were talking about is bedwetting. Maybe, like, Herbs was just pissing in random places. (laughs) Maybe he just has all this pent up... Well, clearly, he has all this pent up anger, doesn't know what to do with it. So before lashing out on people, he pees on stuff. Yeah. I mean, I really wish that he just continued to pee on things instead of doing what he later down the road does. Mm-hmm. So, um, I lost my place in my notes. Okay, I found it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, Herb, clearly, he wasn't that great of a co-worker, but the one thing he had going for him was that he was a really good father. So, um, in 1979, Herb and Julian at this point, I think they'd been married for like nine years, Um, They had their first daughter, who they named Marie. And then after Marie, they had a son named Eric, who was born in 1981. And then their youngest child, Emily, in 1984. (laughs) Um, So after he lost his job at the BMV, Herb just became a stay-at-home dad. Because Juliana was still working at this point, and, you know, her job was enough to sustain them as a family. So he just decided he was going to stay home with the kids while Juliana went and worked. And all of his children, like, they and even Juliana, like they're like he was sweet, he was caring, he was loving to them. He was a really, really great father. Mm-hmm. Um, unbeknownst to Juliana and to the kids, though, he was growing pretty bored with his home life. Like at this point, like he's had this job for ten years before he got fired, mm-hmm. and so he got pretty bored pretty quickly just staying at home with the kids. So he ended up starting to drink a lot. 
And what he would do is like drink at his house and he would go out and he would go into the city and he would actually frequent gay bars <laughs> in the city. And he didn't like Juliana knew none of this. He kept mm. it very like on like he would basically like put the kids to bed, drink, leave the house, you know, and then go seek out gay bars. Mm-hmm. Um he ended up getting a job a few months later at a thrift store. It was just like a regular, just like, you know, entry level job. He initially thought that that sort of job was beneath him. Because like when he was at the BMV, like he had gotten promoted a couple of times, had some decent seniority. So for him to go from that job to just like a cashier at a thrift store, he was like, Yeah, this isn't for me. I'm mm-hmm. better than this. But his tune changed after working there for a couple months, and he started to see it as a really good opportunity to make money, mm-hmm. like a business venture, basically. So he worked at this one thrift store for three years, basically just learning all the ins and outs that he could of how to run a thrift store. And then he ended up borrowing, he and Juliana actually borrowed $4,000 from Herb's mother, and they opened their own thrift store in 1988. And this is where, like, life changes drastically for Herb and Juliana. So they named their store Save-A-Lot. And yeah, it's that save a lot. <laughs> I remember the stories. Yeah, so because my mom, because we used to go to the save a lot up mm-hmm. here. It is as that's a kid, their and chain, I, and we stopped because my mom was like, "No, the guy who owns this mm-hmm. is me." Mm-hmm. This is him. This is that story. Oh my so, god! Yeah, they opened their first store. It started as a thrift store, save a lot. They stocked it with gently used clothing, furniture, and other used items. And then they had a percentage of the store's profit go to the Children's Bureau of Indianapolis every single month. See, well, it was cute. Kind of a big Yeah, brand. it's like, this was in Indianapolis, and we had one here. We had a few. Yeah, like, mm-hmm. it was a huge chain. Mm-hmm. And this is where it started with <laughs> Mr. Baumeister. <laughs> Um, so immediately after they opened Save a Lot, this first store, like business was booming and it was booming very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. Within the first year, Herb and Juliana were actually able to open a second store, like a city over. And within three years of opening that first store, like Herb and Juliana, like the whole family, they were fucking rich. <laughs> they were like filthy fucking rich. So he went from like, you know, they went from barely scraping by paycheck to paycheck just off like what Juliana was earning mm-hmm. and what Herb was earning. Um, at the Indianapolis Star and then the BMV. And I hope now, at least the kids and the wife have all of that money still because I know, like, at least around here, the save lots of all shut down. So, like... Yeah, we'll get into that. Um, but for this moment, at least, like, they were filthy fucking rich. So, you know, of course, the first thing they do after making all this money is they go and they buy their dream home. So the home they purchased was an 18-acre horse ranch called Fox Hollow Farms, and it was in the upscale Westfield area, which was just outside of Indianapolis. Um, Herb had even seemed to like shed that former reputation he had of being like an outsider and a weirdo. And he was now seen as this like well-respected businessman, business yeah, mm-hmm. a successful family man, a man who donated to charity and like really cared about his community. So mm-hmm. complete 180 from the way that he was being perceived before. Um Though the business was doing really well, it did kind of take a toll on Herb and Juliana's marriage. It's like, you remember how Herb would, like, interact with his other co-workers at his other jobs. Like, he was very, like, 
bossy. He was very aggressive. And he was treating Juliana basically the same way. Mm-hmm. Like, she was his business partner in this venture, but he was treating her like she was just an employee. Like, he would yell at her over the smallest things and, like, get really upset when she would try to make, like, even a small decision, like, business decision without him. So, you know, in an effort to try to, like, salvage their relationship and make things better, she just decided to kind of step back from making any large business decisions and just kind of let her take care of everything, you know, whatever. And then she was just kind of, like, staying at home with the kids and doing whatever. Mm -hmm. But there was still, like, a lot of irreparable damage that was done to their relationship from, like, how Herb had been treating her. Um, And they were pretty much, like, on again, off again for, like, the next coming years of their marriage like they would mm-hmm. sep- they would argue they would separate and then they would get back together um and because their marriage was falling apart herb once again started to drink and he started to go back in frequent gay bars were save lots only like in the north i i would assume so i don't think they spanned down to the south i've never like not that i'm in the southern states yeah. a lot but um I don't think Save-A-Lot was ever, like, a southern thing. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure it was just, like, Midwest and, like, East Coast. Mm -hmm. Up north kind of deal. Northern East Coast. Um, Okay. So now we're going to pivot, and we're going to get into, because this has been a lot of background just about Herb. And so you're like, where's all the murder? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Because right now he just sounds like a fucking weirdo who's rich as fuck. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I feel like most rich people are fucking weirdos, so that's just par for the course. Um, but now we'll actually kind of get into the true crimey aspects of, of why we're here and, you know, what Herb Baumeister tends to be known for and what <laughs> your mom was talking about when she said he couldn't go to save a lot anymore. Um, so we're going to go to May of 1933. Indianapolis police had started opening up an investigation after they received multiple reports of gay men having gone missing after visiting one of the many gay bars and clubs in downtown Indianapolis. They received over 10 reports of disappearances over just the course of two years. So it was happening, like, very, very frequently. It wasn't just like, oh, like, one person goes missing, and then a year later, another person goes missing. this was all when, did you say? This was, the investigation was opened in May of 1993. So the men start going. lots. Yes, yeah. So the men start going missing in, like, 90, 91. Mm -hmm. So... They unfortunately didn't have a ton to go on in the investigation initially, and to be quite frank with you, um, they didn't really give a shit because it was gay men going missing. Mm -hmm. So they're just like, oh yeah, we'll look into it, Mm -hmm. and just kind of fucking threw it on the back burner because they didn't care. Mm -hmm. And that was just like the attitude back in the 90s. So um, they didn't actually start really looking into it until they received a report from a man on, and all the sources he's called Tony Harris. It's not his real name. Um, But Tony Harris came to the police and he had this really unusual story about a man who he called Brian Smart, who Tony Harris had met downtown at one of the city's nightclubs. So he came to police and he described how he and this um, Brian Smart had met at one of the clubs And Smart had invited him back to this huge home that he had in the countryside. Harris said that um, Smart, like, after they had, like, they kind of hung out for a little bit, he started just, like, talking about this interest he had in autoerotic asphyxiation. And he 
Tony actually called it a strangulation fetish thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> the proper name is autoerotic asphyxiation. Um, and what Smart had actually gotten Tony to do was like participate in this autoerotic asphyxiation with him. And Tony said that it almost like he was pretty sure that Brian Smart tried to kill him. But he had been able to get away. And after he got away, he went straight to police. He's like, yo, I got a story for you. (laughs) And he also had a suspicion that this Brian Smart was the person who was responsible for the disappearance of one of his friends a couple months earlier. So when Tony Harris first told the story to the police, they're like, oh, yeah, that's weird. I, like, didn't really look into Mm -hmm. it. But then, like, I think it was, like, a year or so later, um, Tony Harris saw Brian Smart at a club again, and he was actually able to, this time, like, take down his license plate. Because the odd thing was, it was, like, I think it was, like, a Buick, and it was in Indianapolis, but the car had Ohio plates on it. Hmm. So, Tony Harris was like, hmm, that's a little weird. So, you know, knowing the experience he had with this guy, literally, like, tried to fucking strangle him. I think it was with, like, a pool hose or something. Uh-huh. Um, so, he's like, yeah, I'm gonna take this down, you know, just for safekeeping. And he did end up giving it to the police, so they could hopefully try to use that information to track down who the owner of this car was and maybe bring him in for questioning. So, meanwhile, while the Indianapolis police have their own investigation going, um, a private investigator by the name of Virgil Van de Griff, who was actually, I think, like a former police officer himself turned private investigator, he was also investigating these string of disappearances of gay men in Indianapolis. So... He really starts getting into it in June of, like, 1994 because he's contacted by the mother of 28-year-old Alan Broussard who called Vandegrift up and was like, my son is missing. Like, I think something happened to him. Mm -hmm. She said the last time that she had seen Alan, he was headed out to meet his partner at one of the popular gay bars. It was called Brothers, and he had just never returned home. Um, almost a week after that, Van de Griff received another call from another distraught mother about her missing son. And this was, um, I don't think, no, this was a different mother called him up. But then he got contacted again by the parents of Roger Goodlett, who, again, similar story. He had left his parents' house to go to a gay bar in downtown Indianapolis. And this was the friend of Tony Harris mm-hmm. that after Harris met Brian Smart, was like, I think you killed my friend. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, he had the same kind of thing happen to him. He left his parents' house to go to a gay bar, and then he just never came back. And he just never turned up again after that. Um, there was a lot of similarities between Alan Broussard and Roger Goodlett. So, obviously, the, they are both gay. They both looked alike. They were near the same age, and they had both vanished like on their way to or on their way home from one of the gay bars in downtown Indianapolis. Mm. So Van de Griff, like, he was on his shit. Like, props to this guy, because he, like, took everything that the Indianapolis police weren't doing, mm-hmm. and he's like, I'm going to do it. <laughs> so he ended up putting up a lot of, like, missing persons posters around, like, the gay bars in the area. Um, he was interviewing, like, family members, friends of the missing young men. He was interviewing, like, bartenders, like, patrons of these gay bars just to try to find out if anybody had seen anything and he actually ended up finding that the last time that roger goodlett was seen he was entering a blue buick 
with Ohio plants. <laughs> so weird. weird, very strange, very sus. So we've got some things lining up at this point. Um, he also received a phone call from a publisher of a gay magazine who had told him that there had been several other gay men that had disappeared in Indianapolis over the previous years, in addition to Alan Broussard and Roger Goodlett. Um, Tony Harris actually ended up reaching out to Van de Griff also because he found out that he was investigating these cases. And Tony Harris then told Van de Griff all the story about his encounter with Brian Smart. And then, like, that was the point that Van de Griff was convinced that they had a serial killer on their hands. Mm-hmm. So another pivot. I told you this was going to be kind of like a two in one. Mm-hmm. So we're now going to dive a little bit into the case of a technically unsolved um, like serial killer case. They called this person the I-70 Strangler. The I-70 obviously is like an interstate that runs mm-hmm. through Indianapolis. So while Vandegrift was investigating all of these current disappearances of these men, he also learned about this ongoing investigation into multiple murders of gay men that had happened in Ohio. They began in 1989, and they, enter, they ended mid-1990. So with this, these murders, the bodies had been dumped along the Interstate 70. Like, that's where the I-70 strangler, the I-70 murders came from in the mm. media. Um, four of the victims themselves were from Indianapolis. Um, In total, there were 12 men who were identified as victims and linked to the I-70 Strangler. The killer's MO, basically, he would choose, like, young men, young boys um, as his victims. And most of the time, he met these boys, these men, in popular gay bars and other similar establishments that were all within, like, a four-block radius of each other in Indianapolis. Mm -hmm. So... All of the victims of the Strangler, they were all later found naked or partially clothed near the I-70. They were often dumped in rivers, streams, and ditches in the rural countryside, and each one of the victims had been strangled to death. So I just want you to remember keeping your noggin, (laughs) Brian Smart's little obsession with autoerotic asphyxiation. Keep that in your noggin. All of you keep that in your noggin. Um, So the 12 victims of the I-70 Strangler were as follows. There was Michael Petrie, who was 15 years old. Mm -hmm. He was discovered naked in rural Hamilton County, Indiana, on June 16th, 1980. Despite his young age, he was a male sex worker, and he spent most of his time in and around Indianapolis's gay bars. So he was reported missing on June 7th, um, but he was observed, or there were reports of him being seen in different parts of the city, like, three days after that, but he was spotted each and every time just riding along, like, in this random man's car. It was the Mm. same car, but nobody knew who the man in the car driving him around was. Um, His cause of death was ruled as strangulation, and his autopsy and his, like, toxicology reports, there was no sign of drugs or alcohol or anything found in his blood. The next victim was Maurice Taylor. He was 23 years old. Um, He was found topless. He had his pants on. Um, He was found in July of 1982 in the Weasel Weasel Creek. And this was also in rural Hamilton County, the same place where they had found Michael Petrie. Um, His cause of death couldn't be definitively established, but there was suspicion from the coroners and the autopsy that he was, again, strangled to death. 
So he was actually like homeless. They like call him a vagrant in the source, mm-hmm. but it's kind of, a, I feel like that's a mean word. <laughs> um, and he lived in like the boiler room of an apartment complex. Aww. So, um, and he lived in Indianapolis and he was, you know, very clearly struggling with money. So like Michael Petrie, he did sex work and he frequented the gay bars around Indianapolis he remained unidentified for eight months um, since his mother, who would have been the only one to identify his body, she was actually detained in a mental hospital, mm. and she hadn't been able to file a missing persons report because she didn't even know that her son was missing. Oh, great. So the next one is Delvoid Lee Baker. He is the youngest victim of the I-70 Strangler at 14 years old. Um, he was found semi-nude near a river in Hamilton County. While investigating his death, police located witnesses who stated that they had seen Baker, like, for the last time on the evening of October 2nd in downtown Indianapolis, boarding a blue car driven by a young white man with a bushy mustache. (laughs) The boy's parents, they told the police that he had been out, like, riding his bike in the city center on the evening of his disappearance. He called them at 1030, they had said, to let them know that he was going to be late because he was going to go to the uh to the cinema with a friend he was going to go see a movie with a friend so this actually concerned them because they're like what the fuck are you doing and they're like you don't have any money on you like what do you mean you're gonna go and you're gonna go see a movie with a friend like how the fuck are you gonna pay for it and like Um, you're 14 get your ass home yeah (laughs) right i know it's like what are you doing out get the fuck home um so what they actually figured out later was that baker had been with a friend, another, um, a 16 year old, and they had been cruising, like seeking out men to mm-hmm. do sex work with, um, for like the last three months they had been doing this and they made about 20 to $23 per night, which is, this is like, I, what, 1980 something. So 20 to $23. I don't know what that conversion is, mm-hmm. but, uh, in 1987, whatever the value of 20 to $23 a night was, like, that is that is what they're making per night. But it's also, like, a lot of money for a 14-year-old. Yeah, right. He was probably like, oh, shit, I'm fucking rich. Literally. <laughs> is, it worth, get me. is it worth having to suck dick in a back alley for a couple bucks? Probably not. I don't but. know. But, and, like, like, I find this one to be, like, so sad because, like, it wasn't, like, he didn't have like any place to be. Like, he was just doing. He it. was just doing it. Yeah, with the with the case of like, the other two victims we talked about, like that was like the only means they had to make money. Mm-hmm. But like Delvoy Baker, he was he was fourteen. He was in eighth grade, mm-hmm. and he had obviously parents that cared about him, and mm-hmm. and so it just like makes you wonder like why did he turn towards doing these things? I like you know it makes me think that like this sixteen year old he was hanging out with was probably, probably like the influence of yeah. that. Um, so, initially, his homicide was thought to be unrelated to the I-70 Strangler because he was not in that similar victim pool, A, because he was so young, and B, because he was black. The rest Mm -hmm. of the victims were, like, I mean, Michael Petrie was 15, but, Mm -hmm. you know, he was working as a sex worker in and around the gay bar, so the Strangler probably thought he was older, Mm -hmm. but, like, Delvoy Baker was, like, a 14-year-old looks like a 14-year-old, you know? Mm-hmm. So initially, they did not think that his murder was related, but it was eventually linked back to the I-70 Strangler. So the next victim we have is Michael Andrew Riley, who was 22. He disappeared on May 28, 1983, after visiting the Vogue Theater. 
Um, other sources claimed it was the Broad Ripple, but either way, it was a nightclub in mm-hmm. Indianapolis. He was last seen with an unfamiliar man with whom he later left with, and his nude body was later found in a ditch in Hancock County, southeast of Greenfield, on June 5th. The autopsy once again determined that he had been strangled, and they were able to determine that he was strangled with like a towel or something that was of a similar fabric. Mm-hmm. Next is Eric Ellen Roker. He was 17. He vanished on May 7th, 1985. His shirtless body was found a few days later near Stream in rural Preble County, Ohio, which is just east of the city of Lewisburg, Ohio. According to his parents, Roker was planning to attend interviews for a summer job on the day of his disappearance, but he didn't actually end up attending any of them. And when they were interviewed, all of his friends and his relatives, they actually denied that Roker was gay. Um, And it was later identified or like they later found out through the investigation that he was actually linked. He had a lot of friends and acquaintances who were drug addicts or drug traffickers, Mm -hmm. which was probably why he was in and around this area and might have gotten into a random person's car. Um, There were a few witnesses who claimed they had seen Eric at a bus stop in the early morning of March 7th. But instead of waiting for the bus, he accepted a random ride from a random passing car. Mm -hmm. Um, When he was found, he had what looked to be like a burn mark on his left shoulder. And he again had been strangled on this time with a rope. Um, next victim we have is Michael Allen Glenn. He was 29. His body was found. He was in only his underwear, and it was in a ditch near Eaton, Ohio, uh, in August of 1986. So he lived alone. He lived in a trailer park on the outskirts of Indianapolis. He worked as a handyman um, because he lived alone, and his job, like he was, you know, kind of all over the place, is going to random places, working random jobs. The date of his disappearance isn't exactly known. But when his body was found, sticking to the M.O., um, he had strangulation marks, looked like they were from a rope, and he was actually identified three years after the discovery of his body mm-hmm. um, through the technology of fingerprinting. So he stayed unidentified for a very long time after, after his body was found. Um, we have next James Robbins, who was 21. He went missing on October 15, 1987. Um, Two days later, after he went missing, his naked body was found bearing strangulation marks, and he was again found in a ditch in rural Shelby County, again near the I-70, just south of Gwynville. So, while they were investigating his murder, police located two more witnesses who, um, they gave, like, they had both seen him getting into a vehicle, except, like, they differed on what kind of vehicle it was. Like, one of them said it was a Jeep Wrangler, and the other one said it was a Chevy Blazer. Mm -hmm. So... Who knows? Who knows what they saw? But they did say that they saw him getting into a random vehicle with a random man. Um, next victim was Jean Paul Talbot. For some reason, he didn't have an age, um, but he was found strangled to death in May of 1989, and his body had also been dumped near Stream in Defiance County, Ohio. Uh, Stephen Elliott, who was 26, he was found in just his underwear in August of 1989 in Preble County, Ohio. Um, again, he had been strangled with a rope. I just realized, like, how many of these I have to go through, so I'm, like, mm-hmm. I'm cutting them down a little. Um, next was Clay Russell Boatman. He was 32. He was a licensed nurse. He disappeared in August of 1990. He was actually, um, again, on his way to a gay bar when he disappeared. His body was found in a ditch near Eaton, Ohio, again, showing signs of strangulation. 
when interviewed about his life, Boatman's family ended up, like, they fully denied that he was gay, but, like, he was on his way to a gay bar. Mm-hmm. And a lot of men in this time period, like, they were not out to their family and mm-hmm. their friends, so it wasn't weird for the family to be like, he wasn't gay. Mm-hmm. Um, then we have Thomas Clevenger, who was 19. He vanished in August of 1990, and his semi-nude body was later found in an abandoned railroad track near Greenville, Ohio. Um... He was also another sex worker who frequented the gay bars in the area. Um, And the last victim we have attributed to the I-70 Strangler is Otto Gary Becker. He was 42. His body was found in a ditch next to a gravel road in rural Henry County, Indiana on October 7th, 1991. Um, While investigating his murder, police again had several witnesses who claimed that they saw Becker getting into a car with two men this time in drive north on the I-70 going into Indianapolis. Um, according to them, one of the men had been holding Becker down while the other was driving. And the witnesses, they were taken into the police station and shown like several photographs of like various known criminals in the area to see if like they could identify. These criminals had like um, rap sheets of, like kidnap and murder. And so they were just basically showing them some photos of some known criminals to see if they could identify them as like who they saw in the car. Mm-hmm. Um, none of them matched the description that these witnesses gave to the alleged abductors. So they're kind of like, they don't have a lot to go on. Like they're getting the same situation of like, you know, we saw him getting into a random car, but like, again, a lot of these men were working as sex workers. So like, it wasn't odd to see them getting into a random car. And so, like, they didn't really have a ton to go off. And, like, they had a few suspects in the investigation, but, like, they basically got them nowhere. Mm-hmm. They had they had a certain lead. They would follow it, and then the lead would go cold. So, you know, the investigation was still going on, but it was really not getting them anywhere. Okay, so done talking about the ice dummy strangle. We are going to go back to talking about Herb now. Herb. <laughs> so, again, Tony Harris provided um, Vandegrift with tons of specific details about the encounter that he'd had with Brian Smart. So, he said that Smart invited him to join him for a swim at a house where he was saying he was living temporarily. He said that he was actually doing landscaping for the new owners who just happened to be away from the house at the time. So, um, Tony was, was like... Herb was doing landscaping? Yeah, this is the story that Brian Smart gave to Tony Harris, yeah. that he was temporarily living at this big house in the countryside doing landscaping for the people who actually really, owned it. Really, it was Herb's house. Really, it was your house, buddy. <laughs> um, so, Tony agrees, and they get into Smart's blue Buick with Ohio plates. Um, he was Tony was not from northern Indianapolis, so he wasn't super familiar with the area, which means, like, he wasn't able to give a description to police of like the the route that they took to get to this house all he was really able to tell them was um that it was an area that had a lot of like large ranch style homes with like horse ranches as mm-hmm. well and if you remember the house that the Baumeisters mm-hmm. buy is a 18 acre horse ranch mm-hmm. so he also described that there was like when they got onto the grounds of the house that there was a sign that read farm and the house called Fox Hollow Farms, so it's, it's all the math is mathing. <laughs> so it's all lining the math, up. All the math we're, is math. We're connecting the dots. Right now. We're connecting the dots. <laughs> um, so this sign was right out in the front of the driveway that Smart had turned down into to go up to the house. So Harris describes the home as being a large Tudor-style home. They entered in through a side door. 
he said that the interior of the house is like very cluttered. There was a lot of like big, like just boxes packed with like furniture everywhere, boxes everywhere. And one of the things that I didn't really mention was that while like the Save-A-Lots, the stores were known to be like very clean and very organized and very nice inside, um, the Baumeister's home was like a completely different story. <laughs> it was like cluttered. It was a fucking mess. Because <laughs> like Herb wasn't cleaning, like Juliana wasn't cleaning. Herb was too busy running a fucking business and Juliana was doing who the fuck knows what. Mm-hmm. Um, so their house was very messy and very cluttered inside. So Harris follows Smart through the house. They go down like some steps to the bar and the pool area, which I believe was actually inside the house. It was like an Ooh. indoor pool. Um, he said that like strangely there was like mannequins set up around the pool, which he thought was kind of odd. Um, they kind of settle in, they take their seats, and Smart immediately offers Tony Harris a drink, which, smart move by Tony Harris, he turns the drink down. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So after Tony Harris turns the drink down, Smart, like, excuses himself for a couple minutes, and when he comes back, like, he's a lot more lively, he's a lot more talkative, um, and Tony actually suspected that he had gone and, like, snorted some cocaine. <laughs> he, just needed a, he just needed a quick little pick-me-up. I just, I'm feeling a little tired. Yeah. He needed, he needed to prep himself for what he was, he was going to mm-hmm. try to do next. So they start talking again, and this was when he brought up the autoerotic asphyxiation. So he was basically like, oh, yeah, I'm, like, really into this. Like, will you do it to me? And so Tony's like, okay. Like, mm, this is weird, <laughs> sure. I guess. Like, I guess if you want me to do it to you, I'll do it to you. Um, and so Tony was like, okay. And he takes like this pool hose and he wraps it around Smart's neck and he basically like chokes him out with it while Smart like gets himself off, you know, yada yada. Mm-hmm. All that fun yep. stuff. All that, all that. All that fun stuff. Um so after Smart was done, he was like, now it's your turn. Tony, it's your turn. You're going to let me strangle you, right? Because I just let you strangle me. <laughs> right. He's like, you got to let me do you. I just let you strangle me. He's mm-hmm. like, trust me. It's real fun. <laughs> oh, God. I'd be like, um, do you hear that? Do you hear that ringing? Um, I think my mom just called me. I think my mom just called me. I got to go get I left my cell phone. They'd be like, it's it's the, the 80s, the 90s. We don't have cell phones. <laughs> hear that i think my cat called my name i think my cat called my name you know what you know on second thought oh my gosh i left my stove on Uh (laughs) you know what you know i think i left my wallet back at that bar we were just you know i'm just i'm just gonna walk back man like it's fine you don't you don't have to drive me it's Mm -mm. all good um but instead of doing that tony was again like okay (laughs) and he lets smart then like put this rope around his neck and began to began wow began to strangle him but it wasn't like how tony had done it to him like it became pretty clear pretty quickly that like smart was not gonna stop Stop. strangling him Mm -hmm. so tony plays smart and he pretends to pass out and when he pretends to pass out he like goes limp Smart lets go of the hose, and then Tony, like, opens his eyes and, like, bolts back up again, and he says that Smart, like, got, like, he, like, panicked, he got really rattled, he was like, oh, I got scared, I thought you passed out. (laughs) Oh, my God, you passed out, I can't believe you passed out for me strangling you with a hose. (laughs) It's like, what the fuck else did you think was gonna happen? What the fuck? (laughs) 
and she's like, oh my god, man, you passed out. Like, ah, I got scared. (laughs) (laughs) Psych. (laughs) (laughs) Bitch, why aren't you dead? (laughs) And his brain's like, fuck, fuck. Yeah. So, um... He's, Tony somehow convinces Smart to, like, take him back into the city and just, like, fucking drop him off somewhere. Um, they had, like, weirdly made plans to meet up again. <laughs> I think Tony was kind of on the guise of, like, this guy's fucking weird, and I think he might have had something to do with the disappearance of my friend. So I gotta so I'm see. Gonna, right, I'm gonna try to, like, play, like, detective and figure out if he had something to do with my friend disappearing. Mm-hmm. So, um... When Tony tells Vandegrift this, that him and Smart were supposed to meet up again, Vandegrift's like, you have to do it. You've got to meet up with him. Um, so he stuck with the plan. He, like, went to the place that him and Smart were supposed to meet up for the second time, but Smart never showed up. So um, Vandegrift at this point, like, he was on the serial killer game 110%, and he was fully convinced that, like, Harris had survived an encounter with the serial killer that was hunting and killing these other men and even possibly was responsible for the I-70, the I-70 stranglings. So Vandegriff, now again knowing that the Indianapolis police isn't doing a fucking thing, he gets in contact with a um I think she was a she's a missing persons Yo, detective. Dog. Do you hear it? Yeah. Bring the dog in the house. I don't know man, but it barks all the time. And it drives me crazy. It's probably sad and wants to go in the fucking house. I, like, I went outside. I went outside, like, on one of my breaks. And (laughs) we (laughs) went straight out Uh of the story. (laughs) But what's new? But I went outside and I was looking around because I could hear it barking. But I was looking around all the houses and I didn't see a dog outside. It sounds like it's, like, over here. It was. I feel like it's coming from, like, one of those houses over there. But either way, like, the poor dog never shuts the fuck up. Like, Give it a toy or something. I don't know, man. They probably just, like, leave it in a room or leave it in a crate. And, and then just, leave the house. And yeah. the dog's like, no. Nah. Rollo no. does that. Rollo yells. Yeah, Rollo's like, don't leave me. He's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> you can't leave me in this fucking crate. And then he busts out of it. And then he busts out and fucks shit up. <laughs> He's like, this is what you get for leaving me, mm-hmm. bitch. <laughs> anyways, anyways. So he gets in contact with his friend, Mary Wilson, who is a missing persons detective with the um, Indianapolis police. And she is actually the rare fucking useful person. <laughs> like, Vandegrift and Wilson were like, the only people who are actually, like, doing a fucking thing with this case. So, props to them. They really... Props to them for doing their job. Right. They really did so much legwork for the Indianapolis police. Like, <laughs> the police, at a certain point, like, they basically, they're like, oh, you got all this evidence? Like, sweet. We'll take over now. <laughs> sweet. Sweet. Thanks for doing all that work for us. So... Um, Vandegrift, like, had known Wilson for a very long time. He trusted her, um, a a lot, and he knew that she would take the case a lot more seriously than anybody else had been taking it up to that point. So, Harris had given the plate number that he wrote down that second time that he saw the Buick, and he gave it to Vandegrift, and then Vandegrift gave it to Wilson, and she was actually able to trace that plate, and lo and behold, the plate trace comes back, to the one and only Herbert Baumeister. <laughs> so at this point, this is like the best lead that they have had in a, since like the investigation started. So they jump on that shit immediately. Um, Wilson herself actually went down to the Save-A-Lot store to like confront Baumeister. And she was like, 
you're a suspect in this investigation of all these men that have gone missing in the last... Come like, here, murdery murster. <laughs> Come here, murdery murder man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so she didn't pull any fucking punches. She's like, I've got your number. Mm-hmm. Like, I know what the fuck you're doing, bud. Mm-hmm. And she straight up asked him, he, she's like, if you don't have anything to hide, why don't you let us search your house? And he was like, uh, I don't think so. So he flat out refused, and he said, next time you try to contact me, you need to go through my attorney. So he clammed up immediately. Um, she didn't let that stop her. Next thing she does is she goes to you Juliana. Go she goes to Juliana, and she tells Juliana everything that they had on her at this point. And, like, Juliana was shocked. She had no idea, mm-hmm. like, anything about this double life that her husband was living. She was like, what the fuck? Mm-hmm. Like, but at the same time, she's like, she, oh my God, my husband. Right. Like, the she father was, of my children. She was definitely shocked by what she had heard, but like, Juliana, she was, she was, uh, like, usually being like a ride or die is a good thing, mm-hmm. but not in this case. No, no, no. <laughs> this is where you give it up. Yeah. Like, if somebody, if somebody came up to me and was literally like, literal fucking police officer and was like, Emily, we think that your husband, we think that Lucas murdered a whole bunch of people in, like, over the last seven years. Here's all the evidence we've got on him. We've Can, even got his license plate yep, picking up from a, the From a man that he literally tried to strangle in your fucking home, mm-hmm. mind you. Um, I would be like, and they're like, can we search your house? I'd be, I'd like, be like, do it. I know I have nothing to hide. If he's a fucking murderer, go get him. Go get him. Go, go get his ass. Pick his ass up. But I'll get him. That was not how Juliana was in this case. So she, she my husband could never. Yeah, right. She was um so she she does initially refuse to let the investigators search her home. The next thing that Wilson tries to do is to get the like Hamilton County officials to just basically issue a search warrant so they can just bust down the fucking door and be like, surprise, we're here. You have no choice. Surprise, motherfucker. Um, but that search warrant was refused on the basis that there was not enough conclusive evidence to warrant them getting their warrant. Um, so him strangling somebody? Well, at this point, they like him the license plate. For the car. Well, they don't, because according to, according to Tony Harris, he went home with Brian Smart. Mm. And they're trying to search the home of her Baumeister. Mm. So it's like the alias that he was using that for this temporary time, like, kind of saved his ass. Because mm. they're like, well, all we really have linking Brian Smart to her Baumeister is this random person grabbing this license plate. Like, you have nothing physical or anything to tie him to what you're saying he did. And so they're like, sorry, it's not enough. Because what they're pro- they're trying to avoid probably like a fucking lawsuit, right? Like, you don't want to just Because this issue. guy has money. Exactly. He's rich. He's a pillar of the community. He's well-respected. He's well, like, everybody mm-hmm. knows who her Baumeister is. And not only is he, like, respected in his community, like, just as a successful businessman and, like, a family man, he donates a huge amount of money to charity every month. So they're like, we have to tread very, very lightly if we're going to go after this guy. Mm-hmm. So, at this point, Wilson kind of feels like she's running to a dead end. Like, she, she questioned her, but he was like, no. She goes to Juliana, and she was like, no. She goes to the Harris County officials, and they're like, no. So, she's <laughs> like, well, what do I do? Um, but now that Herb knows that people are looking at him, he starts to get nervous. 
And, and that's when they fuck up. And what? Yup, exactly. That's <laughs> when they start to fuck up. So he he starts falling back into those same patterns of really erratic behavior that he had when mm-hmm. he was younger. And this, like, really, really puts Juliana off. Like, she sees him, she sees how, like, frantic and how anxious and nervous he's becoming. And she's probably thinking to herself, why would he be so nervous if he didn't have anything to hide? Right. So it takes six months of this, like, weird erratic behavior for Juliana to really kind of turn. Mm -hmm. Um, And what the final thing was, um, like, over the six months, not only was Herb breaking down their business was breaking down they were about to go bankrupt which is why we don't mm-hmm. see a lot of save lots nowadays mm-hmm. because they pretty much went belly up mm-hmm. um the other thing that was sticking in the back of her mind was this really really haunting memory basically that she had um it was like 1992 i think this happened um where her son eric He'd been, like, playing in the yard around the estate. Because, again, they had tons of land, 18 acres. And he had, like, run up to the main house. And he was like, Mom, Mom, like, look what I found. And he hands her a human skull. (gasps) And she's like, um, what the fuck? Where did you find this? And she takes the skull to her to be like, yo, look what the fuck he found. And Herb is just like, Oh, I know exactly what that is. That's um, that's from an old like uh, cadaver, like medical cadaver that my father used to have. Like I let him, I let him like trash it in like on the land because he didn't have anywhere else to dispose of it. So he lies through his fucking teeth. But now that it's the math is math, right? Exactly. She's putting the fucking pieces together. The math is mathing in her head, and she's like, shit. I think my husband might be a serial killer. Uh. So uh, six months after Wilson initially approached her, um, Juliana goes back and she, um, she first, the first thing she does is she calls up an attorney and she starts the process to file for divorce. Mm-hmm. And then she picks up the phone again and she makes another call out to Mary Wilson. She's like, you have my permission to come search our house and search all of the land. So, um, June 24th, 1996 is when Wilson and three Hamilton County police officers, they arrive at Fox Hollow Farms and they begin their search of the Baumeister's home and all of its surrounding land. So one of the first things they noticed when they like kind of walked out into like, um, there was like this big grassy area next to the patio in the backyard where like the kids would play a lot. Mm -hmm. There were... A whole bunch of, like, rocks and, like, small pebbles that kind of, like, lined, you know, the uh, perimeter of the patio before the grass. And they, they kind of look at it and they kind of turn their heads and they squint their eyes a little bit. Um, and they realize that what they thought were, like, small rocks and pebbles were actually a fuck ton of bone fragments. <gasps> oh, shit. And yeah. Juliana never noticed? She never noticed. Like... I don't know how you don't realize that it's a fucking bone fragment. Mm. Um, and they had forensics there with them on the odd chance that they found something. They wanted to be able to identify it right away. Mm. And the forensics team that they had with them was like, mm, yeah, that's human bone. And so Mary Wilson was like, 
oh shit like oh, it's going down like, yeah. <laughs> so the very next day they had a whole team of like policemen and firemen and they just began digging up this fucking land and they were finding bones and human remains everywhere they found over 5,500 fragments of bones and teeth um they were even onto the fucking neighbor's land oh, some of these bones and like bone fragments were um it was estimated that the bone fragments had been from um approximately 11 different men though they were only able to identify eight of them so these eight men they were identified as john lee bayer who was 20 richard douglas hamilton who was 20 stephen hale who was 26 Alan Broussard, who was 28, mm-hmm. um, Jeffrey Jones, who was 31, Manuel Resendez, who was 31, Roger Allen Goodlett, who was 33, and Michael Frederick Kieran, who was 46. Mm-hmm. So, um, Juliana is, she's away from the house when all this excavation is happening, but obviously, like, immediately, she gets a phone call. She's like, we found all this shit at your, like, telling her, like, what they found at the house, and at this point, too, Herb was also away, and he had their son Eric with him. Oh, shit. And so Juliana was, like, terrified that if Herb caught wind that they were at the house and they were digging all this stuff, like... Cause he would dip. That he would dip, or he would, like... Kill her son. Do something to Eric to, like, basically, like... Save himself. Right, exactly. So she, um... She basically barters with the police. She's like... Like, I have no problems with you, like, releasing this. I have no problems with you putting a warrant out for the arrest. But, like, let me get my son back first. Right. So the police were like, like, okay, that's fine. Because, like, they're fine to sit on it for a couple days. Because they've got a fucking slam dunk case. Like, Like, yeah, buddy. They have no doubt in their mind that this is a fucking slam dunk. Mm -hmm. So they're like, okay, like, that's fine. So Herb, um, like, he was served with the custody papers, like, a couple days after and he, at this point, he has, like, no suspicions of what's going on. Because he's out of town. Because, mm-hmm. like, him and Juliana, clearly, they were having marriage problems. They were living separately. So he's been off fucking around doing, probably murdering. Mm-hmm. Um, probably murdering people. Yeah. So um, he just thinks that this is, like, a like a, like a a legal move on Juliana's part. That mm-hmm. she just wants to get custody and writing of all the children. So he gets served with the papers. And he comes back and he, like, hands, you know, he gives Eric over with no problem. So, at that point, Juliana's like, I have all my children. I'm good to go. You can go ahead and fucking serve him with his arrest warrant. Mm -hmm. So, a couple days after she gets Eric back, the police then go and they serve Herb's arrest warrant. So, um, Herb finds out about the search of his home, not through the arrest warrant, but because he sees it on the news. (gasps) And he freaks the fuck out. He's like, I got to get the fuck out of here. Mm-hmm. So what he does is he ends up fleeing to Ontario, Canada. Um, I, uh, I named this little section of my notes, Her Bitches Out. Because on July 3rd, her Baumeister's body was discovered lying just outside his car in Priory Provincial Park. And he had shot himself in the head. He what? left a three-page suicide note with mm-hmm. his body. And he detailed problems with the business and his failing marriage as the reason for his suicide. He made no mention of the murder victims, nor the thousands of bone fragments that had been found in his backyard. So he just fucking killed himself. He bitched out. He bitched out. He, uh, 
took one look at what, how fucked he was going to be. And he fucking... That was their number one mistake was broadcasting it. Yeah, which, like, I... he Why was, would you broadcast it before you make the arrest? 110%, though, he was... If they had arrested him, I fully believe that he would have found a way to kill himself when he was in police custody. Probably. Yeah, because he just didn't want to face up to the fucking music of what he did. No. So, yeah, he, he fucking killed himself. So, um... It was. It wasn't until February of 1998 that police got the tip from like a local businessman that he thought her Baumeister was also the I-70 strangler. Mm. He said that he had. There was like a mysterious, like a mystery man. They called him. He had been photographed leaving the Vogue Theater with one of the I-70 stranglers' victims, Michael Riley. And this businessman who contacted the police, he was like, because he's seeing her Baumeister's picture all over the news, right? Because they're reporting on this other really crazy, this really crazy discovery at his home. And, like, it was a fucking media circus, right? Because he, he's a rich, well-known businessman. Mm -hmm. And they found all this shit in his fucking backyard. He's real murdery. Yep. (laughs) He's real murdery. So, yeah, this, this businessman, he calls the police. He's like, um, yeah, that Herb Baumeister guy that you found all the, like, bones in his backyard. Um, yeah, he was also the same guy that was pictured getting into the car with Michael Riley. So now they're like, oh, shit. Do we, did we just solve two cases in one? So, um, after this information surfaced, like, Baumeister was immediately pinned as the police's number one suspect in the I-70 murders. Um, according to investigators, like, because remember, he is dumping bodies along the interstate from what, like 1989 to like 1991. Remember what year they bought their house? No. 1991. Uh. He's now got 18 acres. He doesn't need to dump bodies on the yeah. interstate anymore. He's got a fuck ton of land Which to hide is them what on he now. Was doing. Which is exactly what he was and doing. And then was crushing up their bones and using it as fucking garden decoration? Apparently, the they never got into, like, how he was able to, like, dispose. Because they found fragments. It wasn't like they were finding just, like, full bodies. It's, like, bare things. He was crushing Fragments, them. yes. And, like, um, I said, well, like, over 5,500 just fragments of bones. I mean, he was hitting them pretty hard. Yeah, he was doing something. It's almost like he was putting them through, like, a fucking, like, wood chipper or something. Because mm-hmm. how the fuck else do you do that? Mm-mm. It's very tedious. I know. God damn. But, yeah, and that was, like, the police's exact theory. They're like, he stopped dumping bodies on the interstate because he now had this huge plot of land that he could dispose of his victims on. Um... Juliana was also able to provide some receipts, like toll receipts, showing that Baumeister had been traveling up and down the I-70 during a lot of the times that um, these men either went missing or their bodies had been found like a day or two later. Oh. So um, there was never any physical evidence found that was able to tie Herb to the I-70 Strangler murder. So like... There are, like, some critics of it who, like, their whole argument was, oh, like, her Baumeister was just a convenient scapegoat. Like, there were just a couple things that matched up and, like, oh, he's dead. Like, so we're just going to basically say that he committed these murders instead of putting the time and the resources in to find, like, who actually did it. Mm -hmm. But, like, I mean, if you ask me, it seems, I feel like it's pretty cut and dry. It all lines up. It all, it literally all lines up. It makes... Like, his M.O., like, when he picked up, you know, like, Tony Harris, and he picked up, um, 
Roger Goodlett, like he was picking up men outside and around gay bars. Mm -hmm. And that's the exact same thing that the I-70 Strangler was doing. It's the exact same MO. It's a very similar like victim profile. It matches right, it matches up so perfectly. Like I understand that there's no physical evidence, but the circumstantial evidence, in my opinion, like it is it's very clear cut. He did that shit. He did that shit. And unfortunately, he fucking bitched out. So we're never going to know for sure if he did it. We know for sure that he fucking murdered the 11 men and then mm-hmm. some that they found in his backyard. Mm-hmm. The only thing that's obviously never going to get confirmed and, you know, maybe he would have confessed to it. Maybe he wouldn't have if he was still alive and in custody is whether or not he was actually the I-70 strangler. But if you ask me, I think he was. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Um, I just want to finish up with uh, just... Wrapping it up in a little, pretty little bow. Um, so with the inclusion of the bodies found in on Fox Hollow Farms, plus the victims of the I-70 Strangler, police would attribute the murders of over 20 men to her Bellmeister, which makes him one of the most prolific serial killers in all of Indiana history. He's like top three. Um, today, like Juliana and... The kids, like, once Save Lock kind of went belly up, they couldn't afford to live at Fox Hollow Farms anymore. So they actually, like, moved back into, like, a small suburb um, neighborhood in Indianapolis. Um, it was actually, like, where she and Herb had lived before any of their kids were born. Mm-hmm. So they moved back there on Fox Hollow Farms. It ended up just being sold. And it's, um, it actually, like, unfortunately became, like, just a general dumping ground for people, like, that killed people. They like just dump them in Fox Hollow Farms. Um, so now this was just like a body farm. Pretty much, it was. In, I the title. <laughs> I titled my notes um, "18 Acre Boneyard." Oh. So it was an 18 acre boat, and that's probably gonna be the title of this episode. <laughs> 18 acre boneyard. But yeah, it pretty much became a dumping ground. Um, it is also like a very popular like dark tourist attraction. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of people who visit Fox Hollow Farms, they describe like experiencing a lot of different hauntings and a lot of different paranormal experiences. Which you know, if you believe in ghosts, if you believe in hauntings like that, would make a whole lot of sense for a grounds that saw the murders of eleven men and the mm-hmm. dumping of however many more bodies for that place to be real fucking haunted. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, that is um that is the case of her Baumeister, serial killer, and possibly the I seventy strangler. Wow. And the founder of Save a Lot. <laughs> and last but not least, the founder of Save a Lot. <laughs> I like so I didn't know that he had this connection mm-hmm. when I started researching this case. Mm-hmm. And when I got to the point of him and Juliana opening that first save loss store, I was like, there's no way. It's not no, there's no way. Mm-hmm. And then I just like I Googled him again mm-hmm. and I was like, holy shit, it's that fucking save lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I remember the one that was in the little like plaza where yeah. like, oh my god. Dolly like, trees and stuff. Yes. Yeah. I was like... We used to go there all the fucking time. I, same. I remember I remember my mom would shop there all the time because it was fucking cheap. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I yeah, was all like... all the groceries. Yup. That's what I'm saying. I'm like, I had no idea that this guy mm-hmm. well, was this founder of Save Lot until I was, like, a few thousand words deep in this <laughs> I was like, oh, shit, Save Lot. But yeah, I mean, now it totally makes sense why all the Sable officers went bankrupt because yeah. the uh, founder was a fucking murderer. Not just a murderer, a whole ass serial killer. Yeah. And killed himself. 
And then he fucking bitched out and killed. Like, it, that makes me so mad. Like, you have the fucking audacity to, including the I-70 Strangler victims, plus the ones out over 20, there was what, 12 I-70 and 11 in his backyard, so that's what? 23. 23. And you are, when you get caught, you're going to be like, ah, shit, <laughs> and fucking kill yourself? Like, no, take, you had the audacity to do this shit. Now, take your fucking punishment for it. Like, did you genuinely think you were never going to get caught? Sick. Sick fuck. It, dude, it makes me fucking crazy. These poor wife and kids. I know. I know the fact that she Because, like, when that no all went down, they were idea. all way old enough to understand what the oh, fuck was going on. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, like, it was such, like, yeah, Juliana knew that he was kind of weird. He was a little odd. She knew but that, that was also the love of her life. Right. That like, she never could have thought that he was doing that. Mm-hmm. And she, like, yeah, like, they had some problems in their marriage, but, like, he people get divorced her. all the time, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, to to her, he was a little quirky. He was a little weird sometimes. To his kids, he was just, like, a really caring, a really loving father. And then for all this, like, in the span of a couple days, like, this shit comes out, and then a few days later, he's fucking dead. Like... The trauma these poor kids probably went through, like, mm-hmm. to not only... They're like, oh my dad, oh my god, my dad's a serial killer, oh my god, my dad's dead. Literally all, like, boom, 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 boom. Mm-hmm. That's, like... They didn't, have, they didn't even have time to process that he was killing all these people. Exactly, like, it had literally happened so fast. Yeah, I, I, I for their sake, I hope these kids got a real good therapist. <laughs> I really hope they're no, in therapy, because they, they genuinely need it. But, yeah, that's, like, it's... That's really fascinating to me, too, is, like, the amount of serial killers who just have families and their families would never in a million years suspect that they were capable of something like this. They're usually really good at it. Yeah, like, the, they keep those parts of their lives so separated that mm-hmm. they, like, their family just, and, like, that's too why a lot of, like, families will, at first, like, defend that. They're like, no, no way. Right, because they can't reconcile in their head their image of They're like, my person. dad's not even mean to me. Right, right. They can't put two and two together of the image of, like, a person who would do these sorts of things mm. with the person that they know and the person that they love. And they're just like, no, there's no way. Like, they can't. That's not them. And that's probably, like, these poor kids were like, oh, shit, my dad's a serial killer. Oh, shit, there's a fuck ton of bones, bodies buried in my backyard. Mm-hmm. Oh, shit, my dad killed himself. Oh, shit, they also now think he's this other serial killer. <laughs> ah, it was shit. like, boom, 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 boom. <laughs> like, one after the other, like, oh, shot, shot, shit. shot. Yeah, so for their sake, I hope they have some pretty good therapists, because, uh... For their sake, that's I, just, I just hope they're all doing okay. Because, like, yeah. damn, your parents were rich as fuck, and then your dad became a serial killer, and then he died, and then another serial killer after he died... And yeah. then you had to leave your nice house. I know. Dude, I w- now you don't have any money. I, I mean, I probably would have left that house anyway. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. I was like, I cannot. Stay but like here. now, you guys are brown. <laughs> and the fact that like the rocks around their patio were not rocks, but full on fucking bone fragments. But like, how did a, one of the kids not pick up like a tooth? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe he was careful enough to not include any teeth in there. <laughs> Or he would have just lied on his asshole like he did when Eric found the fucking skull. Oh, it's a cadaver. It's, yeah, it's just cadaver. It's like, oh, okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> like, why, why, would, why would a professional doctor choose? Like, there's proper ways to dispose of medical cadavers when you're done with them. 
you don't just go over to your son's and house after and bury it in the fucking backyard. And after years of practicing. Years. Yes. Yes. He chooses to do it with this one? No. It makes no fucking sense. But, like, uh, you know, Juliana was just like, okay. She probably didn't want to think too hard about it. So she was like, all right, honey, I'll, like, take your word for it. But then, you know, years later, here comes Mary Wilson, knock, knock, knocking on her door, saying, hey, we think your husband's a serial killer. And she's like, ah, oh, fuck, the math is mathin'. Ah, oh, fuck. It's mathin'. He might be a serial killer. <laughs> oh, shit. Dude, yeah, that's just like, I could not even imagine what was probably going through her head at that time. And, like, props to Juliana, like, the second, like, because I understand her, obviously, not wanting to believe it at first, but the second she was like, you know what, I I think he might be a serial killer. She was like, yo, just like let me divorce him first. <laughs> let me make sure my kids are safe and then you guys can fucking go for it. Like mm-hmm. she was like, yeah, search the house, like mm-hmm. do whatever you need to do. And so she came around eventually and she was able to, you know, help the police however she could with with what she could do in her power. But yeah, the fact that he literally was like fucking a fled all the way to Canada. And B just fucking killed himself. Like that makes me so mad. You're a bitch. You literally <laughs> killed yourself. Here, let Canada. me let me show you a picture of him because he just looks like a little bitch. Probably. Look at that fucking stupid ass face. Yeah, he looks like a serial killer. Yeah, he does. He's just got that dead look in his eyes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's a fucking creep. But stupid. Yeah. Well, that was her Baumeister. And apparently the newfound way of thinking about Sable a lot. <laughs> I still can't believe I had no idea. Because every time I pass by that, I'm like, dang, Sable lot. I wonder why it went out of business. <laughs> this is why. Because <laughs> their founder was a fucking serial killer. <laughs> Not why I know. <laughs> All right. Well, that's enough of fucking Herb. So... If you made it this far, thank you so much. We love and appreciate you. If you want to see some photos from the cases, if you just want to do us a real solid, and as we ask every episode, follow the Instagram. Just follow the fucking Instagram. (laughs) It is at TSRH Podcast. Um, We also have a Facebook page that is also TSRH Podcast. Um, if you want to just, you know, send us a little message, if you have case recommendations, whatever, you can email us at tsrhpodcast at gmail.com. Or even just leave a comment oh, on yeah. one of the pictures on Instagram. That would be really great, too. I know some of you, I know you guys are there. I see you on the stats. I would love to, we would love to interact with you. Yes, because we can't interact with you here. I know, I so know. So go to the Instagram. I know it sounds like we're talking to you right now, but we're just... We're we just, can't hear y'all. We can't hear you guys. You can hear us. We're just talking to a microphone. Yeah. So come we'll on. talk to each other. Leave a comment on the Instagram. Don't be a stranger. We're nice. We'll reply Sometimes. back. <laughs> we'll be nice to you guys. We'll be nice to you guys. If you're feeling it, if you like this podcast, please rate us five stars on Spotify and leave us a good review. It's super helpful. Um, but yeah, if you made it to this point, thank you so much for listening. Autumn, do you have anything else to say to the people? You know what I got to say? Thanks for coming to the party, bitches. Thanks for coming to the party. All right. Well, thanks again for listening, and we will see you on the next one. Uh, Bye. Bye.